Good afternoon, everyone. This is 5050 Face from BVI's Melter Island here doing a Melter Island <laughs> mastermind. But I would not miss office hours, especially because we have not only the incredible Mike Diamond, Mikey D. How are you? Hi, buddy. I was, I was ready to go because at one time you uh, you couldn't get on. I was like, I'm ready to go. And then boom, out of nowhere, you come. I, I was going to, like I said, do everything I can to be here. And that's because of our first guest, believe it or not. I would not want to miss Michelle Cordero Grant, founder and CEO of Lively, an incredible entrepreneur. My girls, I have three daughters, Michelle, 22, 20, and 17. And they would have been completely pissed at me if I, she's like, I don't care what island you are. You better find a satellite internet to hook yourself up. So, love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> welcome to office hours. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love it. Oh God. Technology is the best. I mean, look at us all over, all over the place. It is amazing. And not that in the old days, I would have flown to you with a whole camera crew just to learn from you. And, you know, I, I want to start with you know the understanding uh as a woman starting a company but taking it to the size scope and scale that you've been able to with lively you know it's one thing to start a company we see incredible people starting companies but finishing people like cindy eckert kim perel michelle cadero grant you guys you know the you're the leaders you're the icons the milestones you're the worn moon of entrepreneurship that other people want to surpass you know, what do you think it was the common denominator that you see that allowed you to have such great success? Yeah, I mean, you know, knowing Cindy and, you know, some of the women that you you mentioned, I think it's a combination of one, we are just glass half full at all costs. We see the upside in everything. Uh, we're also very pragmatic. Like we really you got to take my term on. If you have upside in everything, you're a toptimist. You're, you're the top of the optimist. Yeah, we're optimists. Put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> and I think we're also pragmatic and we understand financials and what it really takes to run a business. We spend the time to truly understand the numbers and simplify and focus because that's how you move fast. Simplify and focus. And I would say the, the last thing I think is we just have mental agility. You know, we, we take care of ourselves. We nurture this important muscle, which is our mind and treat it you know, in a way that an athlete would. We're constantly being proactive to push and strive and grow. That's awesome. So here's a question, because I know you have uh, Indian parents, they the doctor, lawyer thing, right? And you had to make that pivot to become the amazing entrepreneur. So was it, how did you make that pivot? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in cultural backgrounds. I'm European, yeah. you know, you have to do certain things. So how did you do that? Because a lot of people watching may be stuck. So coming from an empowering woman like yourself, it'll help them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was definitely on doctor, lawyer, investment banker. We had that option in my house and I studied uh, finance in my undergrad, corporate finance. I promised my parents, I said, I'm going to move to New York. I'll just do two years in fashion, just two. And then I will go to law school. And I, and I did that. I took my LSAT. I went to law school two weeks in. I called my dad and I said, nope, this is not, this is not my path. I'm so sorry, dad. I got to quit law school. I'm going back to New York. I had my boss give me a promotion. So I had a reason to go back. And he goes, I just want you to be happy. And I was like, what? So I was living under a perception and an assumption, a conversation that we never really truly had. 
And so my advice to people is don't live under the assumption, get the facts and get to the truth. And the truth of the matter is your parents just want the best for you. It's so genius. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you want to establish, no matter how old you are, that type of relationship with your parents, instead of projecting onto them what you feel their expectations are, you know, I've nailed it down. I know that every parent only wants four things, happiness, health, appreciation, meaning they add value to your life and love, even if they articulated incorrectly by projecting fear uh, that they have that something may happen to you. But one of the other interesting things, you know, you created your own category. You know, we talked about being a toptimist. That's its own category. But Leisure Ray, obviously taken from your time at Victoria's Secrets and being in in the space. But what was the differentiator about as you coined that term and produced leisure a yeah yeah you know going back to your first question one key ingredient too i think was i had the gift of working for major brands and corporations so i understood what a big company actually looked like i knew how to get the ball down the field because i knew the field that i was playing on and in doing so i worked for victoria's secret had a 30 to 40 percent market share double digit operating income like the most beautiful financial statement you could find in 2011 But what I saw was strong brand and a product that was still the same product from 1998, 1999. But the world had changed around us, right? Athleisure. And women are wearing leggings all of a sudden everywhere in sports bras 60% of the time and not working out. And when I saw this and I felt myself no longer wanting to wear these like contraptions, I thought, what do women actually love? Swimwear and active. And if I could take that and combine that with the functionality of lingerie, leisure came from literally athleisure lingerie, lingerie, athleisure, leisure. It was a run on Central Park. I made up the word. (laughs) And I remember coming to the office on Monday to my team of four. And I was like, guys, come in here. I was like, I figured out what this product is called. We cannot call it lingerie because that word has a connotation in every's mind, right? You think lingerie, you think push up, corset, lace, like, provocative, right? But that's not the category that women want to celebrate all day long. They want to hear comfort, style, and also sexiness, right? And so for me, I was like, we got to make up a new word. So people ask what it is. People pause and say, what is this? And that's where Leisure came from. That's awesome. Did you, now, do you think a lot of younger entrepreneurs make the mistake, like you paid your dues working for another company, learning your craft, understanding, then you were like, ah, I know how this works. I'm going to go do my own thing. Do you think that's a mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make? They rush too early and they just don't understand. You've got to put in those yards. What do you think? Yes, yes. Not only did I you know, spend a, a decade in some in, um, in corporate America, right, working for big brands that I uh, aspired to have one day, I also spent three years when I left Lively and worked at Thrillist Media Group with Ben Lear and that whole crew because I didn't understand startups. I was going to pretend I knew how to start a company. And so I always say, like, I don't have my MBA, but I got paid to learn how to create a company. <laughs> Three and, <years. laughs> and, you've, and you've done a great job. One of the things that I think that you've learned uh, is the network or fostering of ambassadorship. It's an area that I think I distinguish myself as a middle-aged mutant turtle of digital media, one of the few guys that are over 50 in my category, uh, is to understand I'm really only looking for ambassadors, not followers or fans. And uh, especially in the retail space, uh, in in your space specifically, 
you know, an ambassadorship uh, will create a unbelievable exponential result that grows every year. And you guys have over 150,000 ambassadors in your uh, in your business and, and you have real partnerships, not those Barney partnerships where people say, I love you, you love me, nobody <laughs> makes any money. No, these are real partnerships and ambassadorships. How important is the depth of relationships? And did you learn that from working with the big companies and seeing how they established and grew or where did that you know obvious focus come from? Yeah, you know, growing up, I geeked out on brand. It was my way of belonging was through brand. I'm, I'm an Indian girl that grew up in New Smithville, Pennsylvania with one Indian family and it was mine. But I can connect with others by wearing a Ralph Lauren polo or, you know, whatever the latest brand was. And so knowing brand had so much power, I geeked out on that. But then I thought about, well, how did I think about learning about those brands? It's through word of mouth and other people I admire wearing it. And so if you think about building a brand before social media, it's through grassroots. It's through other people vouching and sharing and wearing and so forth. And so that didn't come from corporate America. That just came from like, how do you build a brand today that's long lasting? Whoa, social media is like the biggest billboard of grassroots that you can find. You can actually create this groundswell really well. But the key ingredient I tell people is the sweat equity in real life. Just because you have 155,000 ambassadors doesn't mean you need, don't need to spend a lot of time with 150 at a time to create that stickiness and then that constant churn. Like that is what moves the ambassador program forward. It's not just like a digital signup. It's like I'm at SoulCycle hosting events. So-and-so is in Dallas creating you know, a DIY class. This person's standing for mental health. There's women all over the country now leading lively events on our behalf and that that's what true ambassador programs should feel like a real community that's two ways and i think that's the important part that people forget about an ambassador program it's not a marketing channel it's not it's actually you have a customer funnel and you have an ambassador funnel your customer funnel is their purpose is to buy products right like you want them to to engage in your brand and buy your ambassador funnel is not that it's actually to create engagement and content Engagement and content purchases, two separate things. Yeah, I think you nailed that because that's where a lot of people don't realize. They're like, I'll get this ambassador. They'll do the work. It's done. And they're yeah. like, well, what are you doing? Or they overpay you know, influencers and go, nothing happened. Well, you just overpaid someone. You're not involved. You can't just do that. It's your business. Totally. They're like, how much money does your master program make? I'm like, how much money does your billboard make? Right? Like, it's yeah. not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people. And, and you know, I talk about in the branding mechanisms today of finding your frequency. You do have a traditional marketing background, a business and brand understanding that's traditional in nature. And yet, no matter how savvy, experienced uh, we are, things change so rapidly, especially with a brand. And you know, I look at the frequency of the brand in a traditional sense, but I also look, as you just stated, to the amplification. Uh, that occurs today, what I call the Shakespearean revival is one, it's never more important to thine own self be true, but also uh, the whole world is your stage now. So a brand is much more than four retail stores that have 300,000 people around it that may be super ambassadors. Um, how has that changed with your strategy to take on a different type of authentic frequency and two, 
to really control the scope, size, and scale of the audience that you could have because your success could be your diminished capacity, especially with logistics today and COVID and other things. I see so many great companies with bigger challenges only because they're successful, no other reason. Right, yeah, I mean, I think there's two things that I think about, right? You know, coming from working for public comp companies, I always think about the comp. So when you're having your biggest year, that's when I'm actually the most scared because I'm like, what am I going to do next year? Right. And so I really think about my growth levers and I hold them tight. Like we haven't even gone international yet. And look how big Lively is today. We're just about to scope out Canada. Right. We said no to most major retailers. We just launched Target during the pandemic because we're like, oh, yeah, we need a hedge, a bigger hedge in physical retail right now. And so always having like your playbook ready for the levers you're going to pull. I mean, I love to live in beta. It's just like, I live for it. I live for it. And my team is always like, oh God, she's got the beta face on. Here we go. I was like, guess what we're doing? Four stores next year, right? But the idea is you already know the strategy behind your levers. And so when you're ready to pull them, you know who to call and you know what you're going to do and you know how you're going to rally your team around it. The reason I say that is when you have focus and clarity, you can stay true to your core values. So Lively today feels just like it Lively did six years ago. And I actually learned that from Les Wexner, right? What were the core principles of Victoria's Secret? Over the decades, it always felt the same wherever you went. Angel fantasy push-up, angel fantasy push-up. And Lively is passion, purpose, and competence. What we say is the best brands are both timely and timeless. And that's what we strive for. I love it. Mikey, we got uh, one minute if you want, or? Uh, no, that was timely and timeless. That I, was I, got, I, got one, I, I got one quick one just because I'd be amiss. Um, when you're speaking to young women today, what, what's that you know, go-to piece of advice when you have that big fan of yours come up and just say, hey, Michelle, I'm a huge fan. What, if you were my age, what would you do? Or what piece of advice do you have for me? Yeah, I, I tell people, look, comparison is the killer of joy. Right. I spent the first 25 years of my life trying to fit the mold, trying to do all these things, trying to be the supermodel on the runway. And then I finally it was my husband, actually, that brought awareness to this. Like this guy loves me for all my flaws. That human uniqueness is our superpower. And when you finally acknowledge your superpower as the uniqueness of the individual human as a snowflake, you just live differently. I am not the coolest. I'm super dorky, kind of geeky, very awkward. And I live in that and I thrive in it. And it actually allows me to live freely. And that's what I tell women all the time. Women are their, sometimes their greatest barrier. Stop comparing, live on your own terms. I love it. Comparison is the thief of joy. No doubt about it. Michelle Cadero Grant, you are an amazing entrepreneur, humanitarian and leader. Thank you so much for joining us. We got to have you on my other shows as well. What a treat to have you and Mike here. Thank you again. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye, Michelle. Enjoy. Bye. Bye. Congrats. Thanks. The lively toptopreneur, the toptimist herself, Top CEO and founder of Lively. Good. All right. That's good. Next up, we're just rocking and rolling here. Uh, we have our friend Galit Ventura Rosen, broker, owner at Commercial Professionals. How are you, Galit? I'm doing good today, guys. How are you? Hey. Amazing. We just got back-to-back -back yeah. unbelievable people coming on. And congratulations on your first book, um, The Successful Woman's Mindset. 
uh, released Thank a couple you. years ago, um, uh, three years ago. Um, but what I really am interested in is, you know, you wrote this book before it was chic and in style to talk about mindset for any person, uh, let alone for successful women. So you, in my opinion, were ahead of your time with the topic that you're speaking about. You know, for you, how long was it that you were wanting to, to write this book? And did you feel as if we had a huge surge of momentum coming towards not just mindset, but the mindset of successful women? To be honest with you, David, I never thought I would write a book. It was so interesting. It wasn't really about ever thinking about work. It was more about sharing my experience of being an entrepreneur from such a young, 21 years old, straight out of college, when all my friends were looking for jobs and all I could think of was the worst thing I could ever do is go work for somebody and have somebody tell me what I can and cannot. So it was almost a product of 25 years of hit, miss, failure, successes, and the way that the book came, actually, the National Association of Women Business Owners asked me to speak at their event, and I came up with the topic, the successful women's mindset, and after I I had women for months and months that I ran into in the community share with me how much impacted them, and then I felt called to write the book. I mean, that's really the truth. I do, because with 25 years of pretty much having to be your self-motivator, your own cheerleader, and your own coach, because being in a field which is largely male-dominated, I had to kind of figure it out on my own. That's amazing. I love how you say you turn fear into determination. For people listening, I, I always say turn fear into your friend because the energy of fear, you know, you don't let it go into fight, flight, freeze. You turn that into motivation and say, okay, let me step into that. So talk about that for a second, fear into determination. I love that. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite chapters in the book because I am a touchy-feely person. I feel things. So feel fear. We feel this little thing in the pit of our stomach. Well, you know what? When I about it, when I'm determined, I kind of feel something very similar. So what I found is we don't allow this word, this four-letter word, to make all the choices for our life, which it does. It makes so many choices for so many people. And we realize drive that pushes us, that determination can come from because I always say change only happens in the uncomfortable, right? And when you have uncomfortable so get used to being uncomfortable every day and make that you and that really is how you turn it into determination and you you know determination is uh genetic energetic and learned and you at a young age lost your voice for almost a decade um and you really learned to speak with other capabilities than your voice and did that have any impact on your perception of mindset or the value of mindset or, you know, how to be successful uh, throughout that period of pain, setbacks, mistakes, or voids that you felt you may have been punished with? I would absolutely say yes. I think that the things that happen to us are young, some of us use them to push us and to make us more determined. Others go to other things that are not the most healthiest. So I think what happened, first of all, the voice I have today is not the voice I was born with. 
I actually have a nodule on one of my, so I just got used to speaking and through speech therapy and stuff. I like this is the voice we found or the voice that chose me. So child, kids can be mean. You've heard it all day long. You're different. You sound different. I spoke. So I could still speak, but nothing would come out. And so basically, I learned at a very young age that the typical things that most people take of, such as your voice, is something that I didn't have an advantage of having ways throughout my career, throughout my life, to find solutions that might not have been right there. And to recognize that challenges and obstacles were just part of the way to success for me and not to allow it to stop me instead. Okay, this didn't work. Let's try to find some other way. Do you think like every, every successful entrepreneur I've met or any person that I've met that's really crushed it, it's never been the straight path. It's always, you've got to go through some kind of pain and suffering. Like I don't regret my past. I've gone through hell, but do you think, without that experience and getting through it, you'd be where you are today? I think, I think I don't know how to answer that because I don't know another path. And I think that the things that I've experienced in my life, for example, when I was 15, my best friend committed suicide. Okay. I was the last person she spoke to. And the last thing I said to her was, you're not going to go do something stupid. Are you? Well, I was 15. I didn't know anything. I could have chosen from that experience to blame myself for the rest of my life, or I could have understood that there was no way that I could have stopped her from doing what she did. So that's a perfect example as well, Mike. But I do believe every experience that we go through, traumatic or not, molds us to recognize. So yeah, experiencing death at a young age, experiencing the loss of my voice. I. I'm going to say for sure, they made me appreciate the small things. They made me recognize that some of these challenges you can overcome and maybe not to take everything so seriously and so dramatically. So absolutely, I am who I am today because of those experiences. And if I had to imagine who I would be without them, I think probably somebody different. And another extraordinary mindset that you have that may not be talked about a lot is that you have built your business commercial professionals to over a billion dollars in commercial real estate. And you're on a mission to help empower other women to reach seven figure incomes through sales yes. and, and success and maximizing their profits. Um, being someone who has been blessed twice in their life to make extraordinary amount of money. Um, I'm always fighting my own limiting beliefs. Uh, partly attributed to some childhood trauma that I had and uh, some stories that have been told to me genetically, energetically as an inheritance and some that I continue to tell myself today. And I'm always trying to pursue the infinity plus one philosophy of, oh yeah, infinity. Oh yeah, infinity plus one. Just when I'm thinking big, I tell myself, okay, how can you think bigger? What is your philosophy of being so abundant with your beliefs that you don't seem, you know, with all the limitations that other people may have feared, you don't seem to limit yourself at all, not only limit yourself, but you don't limit other people as well. You bring the most out of them. I definitely have to say that one of my favorite words in the world, like somebody says, well, what's your word, Glee? My word is limitless. My word is limitless. I don't have a lot of fear. I think also from the way that I was 
brought up and the things that I went through, having parents that moved to America before I was born, right before I was born, my mom was pregnant with me, watching my dad work seven days a week, 16 hours a day to build the American dream and not let anything stop him. So I had good role models as well. But I think for me, the one thing that doesn't stop me in all honesty, David, is I look at the day, I look in my future when I'm 80 or 90 years old, and I don't want to look back and regret anything I didn't try. I don't have a fear of failure. And a lot of people that I work with that I that I talk to, I also have a master's in therapy. So I really understand behavioral models and changing behaviors is based on something that isn't real, a limited belief, a behavior, something genetic, something you saw when you were growing up. It's not a real factual thing. So for me, I think I know the difference. And when something doesn't feel good or something I'm feeling at, I definitely believe the more you feel, the quicker you get up. So I think I'm at a point now where I've had failed businesses too. We don't always talk about those, right? And I think maybe what's happened to me is I recognize I don't want to be that person that looks back and regrets all the things I didn't do. That's amazing. So when you're working with someone that's stuck in that, what's the first thing you do with them? Because so many people get mm. stuck in the regret and say, oh my God, I'm a failure. No, you're not. You, yeah. it's, it's, it's feedback. What's the first thing you do with them to get them out of that situation? First, the first thing that I do is I work with them on believing in themselves. We are, as a human society, we are always open to telling everyone we love and all the people around us how awesome they are and how they can be and do whatever they want. But we suck at doing it for ourselves. So the first <laughs> thing we work on, it's true, right? Yeah, you're the right. The first thing I have to work on is if you don't believe you can, you're right. So I can teach you all day long how to be successful. I have this beautiful gift to teach people in any kind of business that they're in how to be successful. But if you don't believe you can, you're right. Don't waste your money. Don't work with me. Don't hire me. I'm not going to take your money. And I've done that before. I'm like, before you work with me, go do this, this, and this. Then let's talk. Now, yes, I can work them through that if they're coachable and if they're open to it. But not all people are. They blame everything around themselves and they don't take responsibility for their own thoughts. They don't take responsibility for the actions they are not taking. So it's really big to start there. Yeah, the difference between accountability and liability, liability yes. being blame, shame and justification, accountability, the ability to ask yourself, what did I do? How did I participate and collaborate yes. with the lessons I need to learn? Your book is a genius, The Successful Women's Mindset. This is a person who has built a company, a commercial real estate company of over a billion dollars, inspired so many other women to reach seven figures in this business. You have to reach out if you feel as if you're limitlessness, but just need somebody to motivate and inspire you and give you directions to get where she is. Galit is the person to reach out. Galit Venture. Uh, a rosen.com we got that down ventura rosen.com we might as well say the name correctly thank you so much <laughs> for inspiring us what an incredible uh set and uh conversation about how we can all pursue our potential regardless of what challenges setbacks or fears we may have you're incredible thanks for joining us thank you guys thank you so much you got it we'll talk Bye. to you soon Julie. join us again
Wow. All right. Last but not least, I hope Robbie wasn't watching the first two guests because uh, the pressure is on <laughs> if he was. <laughs> Robbie Bach, you are the cleanup hitter of an incredible Yankees lineup today. Author, speaker, civic engineer of Xbox. Uh, he is wants to talk about his book, uh, The Wilkes Insurrection, the contemporary th thriller that he has. And I, I love this because we don't get many true authors on, right? We you know, such an entrepreneurial show and, and uh, you know, to have what I consider a true author, not someone that's just as a ghostwriter regurgitating, you know, lectures that they've given or, you know, the outlines of their life. And look, at trust me, I've done both. And um, it, it, what you do is much more difficult. But what I wanted to bring you on for is the book is so incredible because I think it illustrates what's needed in the world today, that you know, we can take nothingness and through imagination, make it a possibility by being inspired, make it a probability. And then through the discipline, strategy and awareness that's necessary, write such, you know, an incredible thriller. Uh, something that seems so real <laughs> uh, is a manifestation or materialization. I think speaking to you, what lessons that you've learned by being such an extraordinary author has been able to allow you to help other people with their leadership, creativity, strategy, and other issues that may be resolved? Well, I think the first place to start, and by the way, thanks for having me. And thanks for having me on today. The, the first place to start is being willingness, being willing to put yourself out there a little further. I mean, like I'm a, I'm a business guy. I ran, worked at Microsoft for 22 years. I was on the, I, you know, I, I started and ran the Xbox team for 10 years and I don't play video games. So it's not as if I'm some, you know, person who somebody looks and said, oh yeah, Robbie, he's a creative type. He's the, the guy who's going to do that. People would have said, no, Robbie's a business guy. He's a really good guy. He's committed to civics. He's very involved in his community, la, la, la. But they wouldn't have said, oh, he's a creative type. And I wrote my first book, which is a book called Xbox Revisited, which is exactly what you described. It's a business book. Now, I wrote it all myself. So the good news is, you know, I, I like to write, but it's a business book. And when I got done with that, I said, I want to do more. I like writing, but I want to challenge myself. And, you know, so I literally sat down and wrote. I wrote 100 pages without a plot. And was just writing about characters and writing about these characters that have been running around in my head, fictional characters. And so what, what you discover through doing that is, you know, that starts you on a journey. And you have to be willing to, to walk all the miles of the journey. And you have to be willing to go that far to get it done. Because, like, the first version of this book was 550 pages. Wow. And, wow. of course, you know, super long, lots of backstory. I'll say very well written. But not a book anybody could publish. And so then you start the process starting in, you know, 2018. Oh, this needs to be, this needs to go from 175,000 words to 110,000 words. Hmm. How do we do that? And you keep working at it. You get better at writing and you get better at dialogue and better at characterization. And you just have to work. So that's a long way of answering your question, but I think fundamental to my character and fundamental to what I've learned is there has to be sort of a persistence and per perseverance in your character to do these types of things and you find parts of yourself that you just didn't know existed.
Do you think that's the biggest problem with most people? They don't sit in the process long enough to reveal for it for to reveal itself, especially in writing, because you know you had to like kind of like what is uh Stephen King says you have to kill your darlings, you have to yeah. chop that stuff up, which is really right. hard to do. So you have to you know be honest with yourself, and you and in that process you've got to do the work. Do you think that's the problem with a lot of people? They can't sit in process. Oh, I think I think people. Well, first of all, I think people aren't willing to take the first step. The number of people who I talk to who just say, I don't want to put myself out there, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't have enough hands and feet for to, to keep track. And, and I understand that. Look, I get it. It's scary. But the first thing is taking the step. And then once you take that step, then the second thing is, okay, um, you hit a little bit of a brick wall. Uh, you can't find what you want to write about or you, what you write pe people don't like or you have to rework something. And then the question is just do you have the grit and the determination to go to the next level? And I think you're right. Some people uh, give up and they give up before they find what they were meant to find when they started the search to begin with. And again, you know, people are human. I get it. It's hard. And, you know, I'm in a fortunate situation in which. I have other things that provide. I'm not writing to put food on my table. If you if you think you're going to write to put food on your table, that is a, re a God bless you, because that's really difficult. And B, um, that creates a necessity and an urgency that I think changes the process a bit. And for me, this was a passion. I've always wanted to write fiction. I love these characters. And so I had the, the time to sort of be persistent and to step away for a few weeks and then come back to it and to do all that work. And that's a blessing that I got from Microsoft, frankly. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, I was CEO of the world's first convergence device in 1999. It was actually the world's first Windows CE device. So I there worked with Googs and Bill and Steve or in 99, uh, you know, with what people didn't even know would be a smartphone someday, they called them convergence devices. And, uh, but it was really, I was going to say the culture at Microsoft and you were president of the entertainment and devices division at Microsoft right. after, you know, they killed the PC phone after a few years and <laughs> created the windows phone, which you did work on. Right. Um, but you know, you're a civics engineer. One of the things that I learned working with Microsoft is uh, the allowance, the persistence and patience that I saw within the context of the company. And then through their executives like yourself that had a longer vision, you know, when we had conversations, e even with, you know, the device being too big and too expensive at the time, better suited for 2019 than 1999. Um, right. <laughs> right. But yet uh, the leadership down was very process and planned oriented. Uh, did that take effect, you know, besides, the, you know, not having the financial pressure, which I agree with, you know, most authors and, and I'm building characters now for the ferocious Buddha is why I ask. And my creatives, people like you that build characters and write stories sure. around and put them together, they have no plan. They have no Microsoft training. <laughs> you know, how important do you think it is, you know, because there's some exceptionally creative people to be able to have a game plan that, you know, you've established for corporate and civil renewal, but now using, do you ever use some of that game plan in building your book? Um. There is a really delicate balance here. And I will tell you that when we were, when I was running Xbox, I was on one side of that balance and I'm probably now more on the other side of that balance being than I was at the beginning. You know, you know, there, there was this old TV commercial which said no wine before it's time. 
And, and I think there is some truth to that in the creative process. And, and yet, if you don't have a plan, the project will never get done. And so this, uh, this process of having a plan, having some structure, but also still being way, uh, willing to step back and say, whoa, um, this isn't quite ready. There's more to do. I, I mean, I'll give you the, the best example. There's a, uh, you guys remember Halo, the original Halo, which launched with Xbox. And the second version of Halo, Halo 2, was supposed to ship two years later. That was the idea. And it was going to support Xbox Live. And we were all excited about it. The management team was waiting. And the guy who ran that's a guy named Ed Friesen. Ed came in and said to us, it's not going to be done. And as a team, we were like, what do you mean it's not going to be done? He says, look, the Bungie team has looked at the product. We, they don't think it's good enough. They don't like what they've created. They want to rip part of it apart and rebuild it. And that was a fight. Because you had some process people, some business people like, well, wait, that was our holiday. And yet you had Ed and the creative folks legitimately saying, look, if it's not ready, you don't want to ship it. And ultimately, we gave them the extra year. And it shipped three years later instead of two years later. And it's, you know, Halo well, three, will argue three times as many sold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Halo lights will argue with you about it, but they'll tell you that it probably was the best Halo ever made. And, you know, so... You have to find that balance. In me and writing my book, um, I for sure had a plan, um, but I also for sure changed the plan. And I, I got to a point where I said, okay, is this good enough? And the short answer was no. And I went back and did two more rounds of edits on it myself and a, a third round of an edit with, with, a, with an editor. But I was going to ask you, do you internalize or do you go to an editor and a mentor when you're doing these things? Because some people have the ability to sit with themselves, know the bar, can research and read and go, this is good, I'm going to put out. Other people need that, the mentor. How do, what's your process? I, I, I'm, I'm a, again, a bit of both. Um, I had people read this book all along the way. Um, uh, a couple of professional editors and then just a lot of people who were people I trusted, whose judgment I trusted. And uh, I'm pretty good at reading people's feedback. You know, people who are friends who read something never tell you, oh, that sucked. That's not the feedback you're ever going to get. But you can you can tell when they say, oh, that was interesting. Okay, well, <laughs> that means it wasn't that interesting and it's time to do some more work. And then you kind of probe and, and try to tease out from them the feedback. So I got uh, a lot of non-professional feedback along the way, constantly. And, and to this day, all of those people are having to reread the final book because the book is not the same. And I can't even remember which version I sent to them. And so if you read the 550-page version, actually, not only is it shorter, but the, the storyline and a few scenes are just new. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize part of the book. So I, for, me, it's, for me, it's an iterative thing. Um, I like to get feedback as I go along. Having said that, I did probably three or four edits of the manuscript completely on my own feedback. Went to page one and said, okay, I have three objectives. I want these characters to be better defined. I've got to trim, you know, 15,000 words out of the book and I need another plot surprise. Go and do, would do that by myself. You know, I've talked to 20 authors. I haven't found one yet who has the same process. 
I've written eight books, four published. I'm writing one right now, and that definitely is not my process. Nor could I write 550 pages and have the patience. <laughs> and and uh, so I'm so I'm so impressed. I have learned one thing about writing all these books is that I sure get a lot more attention by doing a two minute video that millions of people watch uh, than the time it took me to write. You know, my books that I've written, and some are bestsellers, which is great. But I uh, I always use my wife. Uh, I call my wife one of the greatest attributes that she has. My wife is the common man. So like if my wife likes something, it's yeah. going to be super popular. If she right. doesn't, then I have to go niche with what I'm doing, right? I got to find that spectrum of people. So my second book, when I wrote uh, with Blaine Bartlett, she, she loved my first book. I knew it was going to be a great success. The second one she read and she stopped like at 30 pages. She's like boring. I'm like, okay, uh, I got to go back to work. Um, so it, well, it's look, a great look, In the 550-page version, there's a, a plot line in the story, a, part, a little bit of which is still in the story. So as readers read it, there's a, there's a startup company in the story called Cybernoptics. And so Cybernoptics is still part of the story. But the second half of the original manuscript had the full Cybernoptics story laid out, you know, and and with great detail and lots of cool scenes and all things that I remember from tech meetings and fights and yelling and business decisions and la la la. And it was part of this thriller plot. Uh, the first four or five people read the book said, God, I really liked it. And said, yeah, I could have gotten without the business stuff. So a big chunk of cybernoptics got lopped off. And it's still a very important part of the book. There's still some really nice things about it in there. But as you say, there are things you just have to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to do that. And that's because people just said, yeah, well-written and boring. Yeah, there's an old uh, lesson in business. And, you know, Microsoft, as you told the Halo 2 story, right? You, it's difficult when you're in love with your product. And if you're writing a 550-page thriller, uh, you've got to fall in love with your product. So it's like, you know, giving away a baby, uh, you know, it's an incredible feeling when you have to cut out, uh, you know, part of your baby. So I totally appreciate that. I am so excited. I, you know, have listened to you speak, really enjoyed your first book, believe it or not, and really excited about the Wilkes Insurrection, completely different space. As I said, I love a great thriller. I fly all the time. And uh, when that internet goes down, the Wilkes Insurrection is coming up and opening up. Thanks for writing it, my friend. I will give you, before before we leave, I'll give you one piece of advice. Um, go to WilkesInsurrection.com, watch the two-minute video, <laughs> and don't open the book up and read the first two chapters on an airplane. That is a bad idea. Okay. So that's the only thing I will say to you. Um, I hope you enjoy the book and uh, appreciate you having me on. And, and it's not 550 pages now. It's a svelte 350, and you'll enjoy the read. Perfect. That's like seven Mike Diamond books is perfect. <laughs> Robbie Buck, yeah. thank you for joining us. We'll have you back. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Have a good night. Bye, Thanks. All right, Mikey, takeaways oh, wow. for the day. Wow, what a really, really amazing show. It's always amazing. Dude, we got like three super, super dynamic, successful. I mean, you're talking eight, nine-figure people. Yeah. You know what I loved about it? Everyone... Um, all different guests. And I found this the other day, um, working with someone and, and he was complaining that, you know, he couldn't get anyone to believe in him. I'm like, just believe in yourself, do the work, stay in process. And all our guests talked about process. 
and paying their dues and figuring it out and believing themselves. So for me, it's staying in process and just being gritty, like biting on the back of your teeth and sitting in the work and letting it reveal itself. And so many people just will not stay in process and do the work. And they're looking for a white light experience. It just doesn't happen. So that's what I'm doing. I love that. And number one, I want to congratulate my team. And I know you say this to me all the time, but you know, the, the caliber of guests that we have on Office Hours, not just the TV show, on, on this digital show that we started during COVID to help people. I mean, th- those are billionaires. I mean, they're a real deal. You, you can't get advice like this. And so many people want to write a book or, and, you know, very often I have different takeaways than you. This time I'm so close because I think it just completely resonated. You got to do the work. You just got to do the work. Right. You, you got to take your time and work for a big company. You got to, you know, work at 22 years at this company. You, you got to, you know, go through 10 years of challenges and struggles, maybe physically, health wise. You, you have gone through that. Right. And you don't it's not that, you know, everybody has to have these things. It's just everyone does have these things. It's how they react to them. Every individual has this shit. And how are you going to you know react to the shit? Because that's life. And these are three people that know how to react to the shit and they do the work in all three, believe it, they're still doing the work, Mike, and they don't have to. They're like Alex Machinsky, the billionaire standing at 730 at night on a Friday doing an ask me anything, standing, sweating when he could be with his six kids, his wife in his penthouse in Manhattan. He's out there for the community because he does the work, regardless of how much money they have in the bank. And so I want to reiterate that. I want to thank you, Mike. For coming on, Love I'm gonna you, go man. back. It's Meltzer Island Mastermind. They're waiting for me. I would not miss this, my brother. I made it. I love you. So good. Bye, mate. Love you. Bye, bye. All right, that's it. I got to get back to help other people. Be kind to your future self, and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>